Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that wonders if Bet365 should change its name on leap years. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Ghibli Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Roops. We hope you all enjoyed last week's episode because we've got more of the same for you today. Just as a reminder, timestamps for each segment will be in the description if you want to skip to a particular bit uh, to, to you know listen to Guessing Game or this and you're not really interested in hearing me talk about Sam Allardyce, which we will be doing later today. Um, two topics we're really excited to bring you today and discuss amongst ourselves, as well as three of the games that happened this week that were just too interesting not to cover. Uh, to start off, we're going to be looking at a yet another failed attempt at changing the substitution rule in the Premier League, uh, which happened this past Thursday. Yeah, and this is a really interesting one because Premier League has now become pretty much the only major league not to have switched over to five subs. Um, so interesting to, I guess, try and break down why that is and, and what's really going on. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I was really interested in digging into. Obviously, we've talked about this in part before because this is the third time this vote has been brought up and denied. Um, and obviously, the five subs happened at the end of last season when we sort of came back from the coronavirus break. Uh, and as you mentioned there... Not only does every other major league in Europe have the five subs rule currently, but also all the other leagues in England, you know, all the EFL leagues and even European competition. So why is it that the Premier League has gone against it? And what's the story behind the story? Because I think, you know, when we discussed it, it was very obvious what the reasons seemed to be. And you can understand why. And it becomes very clear if you look at the teams that did vote against it. You know, it was Aston Villa, Burnley, Crystal Palace, Fulham, Leicester, Leeds, Newcastle, Sheffield United, West Ham and Wolves that voted to stick to three subs per team. Now, looking at that, there's a very obvious set of omissions, which is the top six. You're also missing Everton. You're also missing, bizarrely, West Brom. But for the most part, it's the teams that will have a little bit more investment, a little bit more money, and thus will have a lot deeper squads. Um, and the result of this is that if you have five outfield subs, or potentially, you know, goalkeepers are, but probably outfield substitutions, you stand to be, you know, a, a, a lot more well off if you're a team that has five amazing substitutes to come on. How many times, I mean, have we looked at, say, Man City playing West Ham and Man City's bench costs more than the 11 West Ham have turned up with? Yeah, which is a crazy statistic. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, that's that's not exactly news. I think we also discussed that ourselves. But what I think is interesting is looking at what that says, what story that tells us about the the perceived imbalance in the Premier League by the clubs themselves. Um... Firstly, I think it's really interesting to note that the teams I listed there that voted to stick to three subs per team, that was 10 teams. So the vote was actually split down the middle, 10 teams to 10 teams. Um, any of our listeners who are familiar with the uh, Premier League regulations or sort of were here when we discussed it a few episodes ago uh, would be remember or be familiar with the fact that any motion to, that, to have a rule enter the Premier League rulebook needs to have uh, not just a majority, but it needs to have 14 votes to enter the rulebook. Um, so 10 to 10 doesn't do it, but it's just interesting to see that it's not massively one way or the other like when we saw the um you know 19 to 1 vote with the um uh, 1495 thing this has been really really divisive there's no general consensus uh, and even though it hasn't come in this is the third vote we might see a fourth w- what does this tell us about the state that the league is in and why is it that in la liga or syria or, or the bundesliga league sort of the, the teams that are maybe less well off in terms of squad depth are more willing to allow it to happen for the safety of their players than maybe the teams in the Premier League are? Well, the way I see it, there's there's a really interesting um, divide going on. And I think that 
the the two people on opposing sides. One, the EFL clubs, who are all the smaller clubs in England, uh, in lower leagues that have all agreed to it. And then two, as you mentioned, the foreign leagues, um, such as Spain, Italy, France, Germany, and things like that. And it feels like, in my mind at least, these guys are doing it for two very different reasons. To me, it's happening in the EFL because A, they want to be able to protect their players, and B, because they have a pretty good spread of competition and of money across the league. So there's no you know, one or two teams dominating financially, which means that they would have a massive uh, advantage to getting the extra subs. And then when you look um, abroad, I think the reason that it's happened is is maybe also not just because they want to protect their players, but also because the biggest clubs have a lot more power in says and in like decision making than um, the biggest clubs in the Premier League do. Yeah, very so, true, especially in Spain, for example. Exactly. So my take on it is that the Premier League is in this really interesting spot where the smaller clubs in the league are competitive enough that they get a say, but they're not competitive enough financially to be happy with five subs. I think that's that's a, a one definite take that could be could be you know a good way of looking at it. I just found it very interesting because the assertion that you know when people talk about the Premier League, it's often lauded as the best league in the world, and the reason that it's lauded as the best league in the world, the reason people cite is because it's competitive and anyone can beat anyone. That's as true this season as it is any season with massive upsets happening, teams that you don't expect to beat other teams, you know, beating the champions, scoring seven goals, or teams going away like Crystal Palace beating United at Old Trafford three one. I still think we are in this league that anything can happen. So it was just so interesting to me that this is a ruling that is sort of, if you look at it, suggests that these teams think that it's not anyone can be anyone there is a massive advantage and yes obviously the league is won by a very small handful of teams with the exception of of Leicester a few years ago um but I it, it was it was kind of weird to me to think that you know it's, it's still believed that there's a massive you know a massive imbalance when I don't know is, is there a massive imbalance what do you think well I mean you read out that statistic about the sub versus the starting lineup of the the opponent's teams so obviously there is a financial imbalance and obviously you know when you look at the spending of the big clubs they do have much bigger budgets I think the main thing to note is that what they're saying is that we think there will be a much bigger imbalance if this happens not that we recognize the imbalance now I think sure. it is very much true that anyone can take on anyone I don't think that's changed I think if anything it would be this rule that would change that, not that being the current standing. Yeah, that's that's a good point to make. I, I would also like to just think that I don't, obviously, you know, <laughs> there's statistical evidence for the fact there's a financial imbalance. I just don't think that necessarily means there's as big a quality imbalance as you might think. I think that the quality generally across the table is a lot closer than it is in a lot of other leagues because we do have the case that the 20th team will go away to the, to the leaders and win 2-0 or something. That is something that's not that surprising in the Premier League. True, but that's also mindset. You know, it, when you get like a, a small team in La Liga rolling over and not even fielding their best side against Real Madrid, then what hope do they have of coming over the win? It's this whole mindset of like sharks in the water and anyone can take on anyone. And as soon as even the smaller clubs sense that they can get a result anywhere at all, even if it's away at the Etihad, then they will go all out for it. Yeah, that's true. I speak, I'm glad you brought up the Etihad as well, because when I was reading this ruling, there was a big part of me that was like, is this just because Manchester City exists? Because like all the other top teams, even your Chelsea's, your, your Liverpool's, your Manchester United, all the other big spenders, they definitely have 
like weaker players and not to say that City doesn't, but like there's definitely times when you can look at Chelsea, for example, and they'll be lining up with Mason Mount or United will be lining up with Dan James and you go, oh, second string's coming out of it today. But for City, their second string is like, oh, we're playing Mares and Ferran Torres instead of Aguero and Sterling. And it's like, okay, that's slightly not as good, but it's still really, really quality. So there was a part of it that was like, is this just because City exists? I mean, I, I think that is to dismiss the financial power that someone like Chelsea has. Yes, Mason Mount is homegrown, but he's also probably one of the first names on the score sheet at the moment. Sorry, not the score sheet, the um, the, the lineup sheet. I think that if you look at the wealth of, of attacking options that they have and like spending like a lot of money on someone like Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, um, Hakim Ziyech, these are all signings they made like just this year. So I, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's definitely the case that it, it is you know, trying to regulate the elite clubs. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think it's interesting as well, though, just because squad depth is much more of a thing, even for the quote-unquote lower teams in this league. And I, I think it is interesting that all of these clubs... Also, another thing I want to distinguish is that it's not necessarily the managers that have made this decision. David Moyes came out and said that um, he'd actually changed his mind and would support uh, a rule allowing five subs, but West Ham voted against it because the club didn't want that to happen. So I think Yeah, I was interested to see that as well. From a club level, not a, not a managerial level, because you would think that the manager, having sort of the best grasp on how subs would affect the team and sort of how much the team would benefit from that usage, would have the final say, but at least in West Ham's case, it's not so. Yeah, also just interesting to note that he did come out and say it. Surely, you know, you'd go, well, the boss has told me this, so I'm just going to keep out of it. Yeah, maybe. I I think it's kind of a difficult one, because if you're, you know, if these are the decisions being made by the clubs as organisations, it may well be the case that players at some of these clubs have voted against it themselves support the five subs thing because it's their bodies that are on the line, essentially. And even if you're playing for a club that you love, ultimately you don't want to get injured and you know not be able to play for six months, seven months because you've been being overplayed, especially with this congested schedule coming up. Yeah, no, but what I, what I meant is just that it's interesting to note the importance of this decision because it is a hill that managers are willing to die on and they're willing to risk you know, their, their relationship with the club to do so. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. The, the only point I was making was that the, what that maybe suggests to me is that maybe David Moyes has been in the dressing room and a lot of the West Ham players have voiced their support. So he's hedging his bets and like trying to keep in the dressing room instead of necessarily pandering to the owners. Yeah, could well be. Um, could make sense. It's definitely something that, you know, really, really does split the room. So it might well be the last we hear of it for a while. It might well be that we, we get another vote in another couple of months. Um, time will tell. I'd be surprised if we didn't, partly because this wasn't the only rulebook change that was tabled. Uh, and although this one didn't pass, there was another rule tabled that changed. And that was the increasing of a substitute bench allowance from seven players to nine, which is another interesting one to me, because again, that suggests that there is an acceptance that there needs to be a change in processes due to the circumstances we're in. And also, like, I don't, Understand, like I understand how fine five is going to benefit the top teams more than three is, but at the same time, giving City a deeper bench to draw from also benefits them. So I thought it was interesting in a way that they were fine with this one, but not with five subs. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was surprised by that as well, because to me, that's, that's almost even a bigger advantage um, to big clubs that they can rely on, I guess, tactical changes midway through the game because they do have that depth. So yeah, I, I also was a little bit baffled by that. 
That, that, right? That's weird, because the, the, you know, changing from three subs to five, yes, gives you an advantage if you have a deeper bench, but it does undeniably reduce the risk of injuries. Changing the bench size from seven to nine doesn't really do anything to reduce the risk of industries, but injuries, but still does benefit the teams with deeper, deeper squads. You would think so, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it, it is one that seems to defy logic, so, um, we have to think about that one a little bit more before I can, um, break it down for us. I think it's interesting that the FA chief, Mark Bullingham, came out uh, and voiced the FA support for it, saying, yes, we would prefer it if the Premier League bought in five subs. Um, you know, it, it's very difficult to form a concrete opinion on something like this from, you know, the, the fan perspective, because it's something like we haven't really seen before. And players are getting injured uh, at a higher rate than usual, I would have said. And I think we're only going to see that increase as the season goes on. So, I yeah. You know, but at the same time, I really do sympathise with the clubs that don't have the financial resources of the top teams. I really can, you know, understand and sympathise and, and in a way support why someone like Crystal Palace are going, no, we don't want five subs. That's not fair at all. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know, man. We, we will, we will have to wait and find out. The one, uh, just to wrap up our, our substitution uh, talk thing that was good, that was not yet introduced, but has been talked about being trialled as early as January of 2021, would be concussion substitutes, um, which will be when a player receives a head injury, there will now be a maximum of two additional subs that can be made on top of the three subs. So you know, if you have one off, it doesn't use up one of your subs. If you've used your three subs already, you can still have a concussion substitute. Um, they'll be taken off. They can't come back on even if they pass the concussion test which I think, you know, talking about player safety is definitely very, very important. Um, and, you know, you shouldn't be penalised for, you know, concussion stuff because you've got to be so careful about head injuries. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, th- there have also been studies linking um, heading the ball like numerous times to, to concussions and things like that. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah, the more you can look after players, the better. So I'm, I'm definitely all for that one. <laughs> Do you think there's any chance that we're going to see some uh, some snakery from some of the teams that wanted the five-man sub? Are we going to have, like, Pep motioning to like, Kevin De Bruyne, like, tapping his head, being, like, headbutt the goalpost and pretend to be concussed? I mean, it, well, it's something that happened in, in rugby a little bit. Um, so interesting to note there, you know, they had the um, the idea of blood subs was, was very much a thing and has been for a while. And um, definitely a couple of high-profile incidents of players sneaking things like razors into their mouths so that they could um, just, like, cut up the inside of their mouth and then go off bleeding. Um, so, I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility, but surely there are just too many cameras these days, especially with the, the onset of VAR. You, I don't many, think you'd be able to get away with that at all. Too many cameras and, like, blood subs, drawing blood on yourself. It's a lot more, it's a lot more easy to, like, inconspicuously draw blood from your own person than it is to give yourself, or not even give yourself a concussion, but like give yourself the illusion of having sustained a concussion without also giving yourself a concussion as well. Because like, what, what do you do? Like just run like head bowed, head first into people? Well, I guess it could be like anything, you know, sometimes a player goes down and just decides to stay down for a little bit longer. And if someone does find themselves in a position where they want to save up a little bit of time or they do want to make a substitute, then... Maybe they capitalise on clashing heads with a, another player. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah, sure no, there could be some applications uh, of it. But I, I'm uh, interested to see it where it goes. And I, I think neither of us will be surprised when a certain team that wears red-coloured shirts has a certain player go down with a head injury <laughs> to, to like, <laughs> make a tactical substitution later on. It could happen. It could happen. And inevitably, they will score the winner. Uh, absolutely. With the player that's come on. Oh, Oh, no doubt. No doubt. 
<laughs> the concussed player running onto the pitch at full time, dancing around with them. <laughs> exactly. I, I look forward to it um, and uh, the ensuing madness that follows. <laughs> uh, going into guessing game, uh, another interesting one for you this week. It'll be interesting Let's to do see this. If you... If you get this, I've gone for clues Ready. that I think you'll like. You've, you've given me a bit of feedback on the kind of clues I've given, so I've tailored this in a way that I think you'll like. Um, and I think, well, well, we'll see how you go for the clue. Um, my okay. hints are, the first one's quite long, so, so make sure you get it all. This player has won the Footballer of the Year for their nation a record eight times, and is widely considered to be the best player from this country ever. However... You might say the competition is slightly less fierce than for other countries, since this nation is the youngest country to occupy the FIFA top 10 rankings. Okay. So, so quite a lot of information there. If, if you wanted me to read it again, or you, you didn't get it all, then, then I'm happy to. But uh, did, did you catch all that? So they've been Footballer of the Year for their nation eight times, mm -hmm. and are widely considered to be the best ever for their country. Yep. And that country is the youngest country in the top 10 rankings of FIFA. Yeah, the youngest country to, to occupy the FIFA top 10 rankings. Okay, I'm ready. So, so lots of information there. Top 10 club, very young country, and this player is a record eight times their best player. Um, while, sorry, when initially signed by the club that he still plays for, he was voted as the worst signing of the season by the largest sports publication in the country. Okay. There's a big story when it happened. Um, you might remember it, or you might remember it as the episode goes on, because it was quite a quite a funny one, and, and retroactively is now a very funny one, because despite that undesirable accolade, this player went on to win, whilst at that club, amongst other things, a UEFA Men's Player of the Year award, a Champions League, and a World Cup Golden Ball. World Cup Golden Ball? Mm-hmm. Oh, that has that has scuppered my thoughts a little bit. Okay. So that those those are our clues for now. Obviously, as always, you've got a, a good amount of time to just let that marinate in your brain and see if we can come up with an answer by the end of the episode. Uh, but okay. Sh shall we move into the next section of the episode, which we'll be talking about just a handful of the Premier League games. Um, just as a refresher, obviously, uh, to the listeners, we've moved slightly away from doing every single game of the Premier League uh, per week. Sometimes we might go back to it, but we're going to be picking just a handful of the games that were really appealing to us and we thought merited discussion. Uh, and this week we've gone for three games. Um, let's which was off. no easy choose because there were some real uh, big ones this week. Um, and the fact that, you know, that we've had two game weeks in um, the last five or six days. Um, Absolutely. But but each game here, I think, has drawn influence from the game that was played in midweek, and we'll reference that as well. But the first game that I chose, of course, was irresistible to me, for I, as long-time listeners of the, of the show will know, have a raging hard-on for seven-goal thrillers, and that was <laughs> Crystal Palace nil, <laughs> Liverpool 7. Yeah, and I mean, what an absolute thrashing it was. Um, a real show of force again. We've talked about how you know Liverpool have at times fielded a weakened team and just completely bopped an opponent. And this was another such moment, um, you know, starting with the likes of Minamino um, instead of Mohamed Salah. Um, and yeah, Fabinho still at centre-back and still to come out 7-0. And they just look so dominant on the pitch as well. Very deserved 7-0. They did look really dominant, and I, 
We'll talk about Liverpool a little bit more in a minute because I also want to relate it to their midweek victory over Spurs. But one of the big stories for me in this game, which is not to take away from the fact that Liverpool were super dominant at all, but it was just how bad Crystal Palace were. Liverpool were all over them, but Liverpool scored seven goals. Do you know how many shots they had on target in this game? It was like 10 or something. Or They had 10 shots. They had seven shots on target. Every single shot they had on target went in. Only seven on target? Wow. <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't even one of those issues where it was the fault of the keeper. I think Vincente Quite is a really, really solid stopper. But, um, you know, I think it was just the fact that, obviously, some of them, like the uh, final Salah goal, was just an absolute rocket curl perfectly into the top corner. But a lot of the time, the Liverpool attackers were just in so much space and had so much time that they could just close down the keeper one-on-one. And if you're one-on-one with Sadio Mane or, or, or Mohamed Salah, it's not really to you're to you're not really to blame if you get beaten. Um, yeah, I just... think um, the the reading of it for me was just that the first couple of goals were good, but were I don't want to say opportunistic because I think they were deserved, but it really could have gone either way. Like I think Minamino's goal could have been blocked quite easily. It wasn't the best first touch that he made, but he still managed to get a shot off. Like I think um, Sadio Mane's goal as well. It was a heavy first touch. He yeah. luckily, well, not luckily, it's also bad defending, but he had a lot of space around him um, to be able to take such a big touch. Um, and then I just think, like, you're 4-0 down and and the, your opponent brings on Mohamed Salah. <laughs> Obviously, your heads are going to drop. Like, that's just the most weaponous, cruel substitution that I've seen in a long time. That was really, really cruel. Yeah, but like just on your point there, like obviously a couple of the goals were individual brilliance, but a lot of the goals, the, the Mane one I, I assume you're referring to um, when he was in between two players and it was a bit of a scramble and he sort of turns yeah. and it's a good turn, but no one's sort of challenging him for the second ball. And it was just a lot of stuff like that where Liverpool were just doing what they're always going to do, which is be full on and go full force and take advantage wherever they can. And Palace just weren't, you know, when Minamino takes a heavy touch or, or Mane gets the ball in a difficult position, they might still score because especially Mane's a fantastic player, but it shouldn't be that easy for them. Yeah, you wouldn't think so. I mean, oh, some of the goals I've got to say, though, I really enjoyed. For some reason, that first Roberto Firmino goal, where he just nudges it through, just is really aesthetically pleasing. Great finish, great finish, but I mean, fantastic cross again from Andy Robertson, but it's it's so easy for Roberto Firmino to, to finish there. Not that it's an easy finish, but as in like, no one's challenging him. He's under no pressure from any defenders because he's just skipped through. They're all sort of busy looking the other way, like they haven't realised that's what Andy Robertson does every single week. And he just has the ability to have a great first touch, and his second goal was really good as well. Weirdly, good finishing game for Roberto Firmino, but... No one's challenging him. So I thought, really, really, really impressive from Liverpool, which we'll go into now. But Palace, I, I just, you know, they're 13th place at the moment. So it's not like they're in crisis. But there's there's something about them as a side that always makes me a bit uneasy. And if you look at the season they've had so far, they picked up a really big win at Old Trafford earlier this season. Other than that, have largely picked up their wins against smaller sides. And after Boxing Day, they've got Leicester, Arsenal and Man City as three of their next four games, which... I mean, it, they'll probably be Arsenal 2-1. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, it could be a rough ride there. And they're 13th now, but I, I just... I don't know. Maybe I'm being reactionary, but it's tough to not be reactionary when a team gets beaten 7-0. You know, conceding 7 and no reply. Yeah, no, I, I definitely know what you mean. And, and it is weird. There are some strange things like, you know, we, we both thought that with Luka Mielovic back in the side, there'd be more stability. There obviously wasn't at 7-0. Um, you look at the fact that they've got seven or eight injuries, but none of them are really key players apart from maybe Mamadou Sakho in, in the heart of defence. 
um, yeah, it, they're just really blowing hot and cold at the moment. Sometimes, you know, they, they flip a coin and, and decide to connect well and attack and, and defend robustly. But it, it does just, yeah, it, it, it's confusing. Um, I think it's quite an aging defense you know Nat Klein Gary Cahill these are kind of offshoots from from big clubs um and maybe that needs a little you know bit more young energy added to it but Kiyate too, I see of no sorry Kiyate too obviously isn't isn't that group of, of slightly older you know defenders that they've got yeah definitely I mean personally I, I don't know obviously something needs to change when you lose 7-0 at home like that is an inexcusable result no matter who you are in the Premier League, in my opinion. Um, some credit to Liverpool, as we said, but yeah, something needs to change at Palace um, because just the, the the balance isn't there. No, it really isn't. And I think it just when things can go that badly wrong ever, it just suggests that there are underlying problems that maybe aren't being treated at the time and you're sort of papering over the cracks with draws here and the odd win. But, you know, let's not forget this is a side that also lost to Burnley. And that is you know, kind of at the moment, losing to Burnley is like one of the things that is like, oh, trouble ahead. Maybe not now. They're slightly picking things up and obviously one against Arsenal and one against Wolves. But at the, at the point when they lost to Burnley, Burnley were still very much in the doldrums and couldn't buy a goal. So I don't know. Hmm. Is, is this going to be something that we see later on in the season and go, oh, well, the signs were there for, all along? Well, time will tell, I guess. I mean, um, you know, Ben Teke did pick up a red card last week. Um, or in midweek and obviously you know when you've got a striker that's suddenly starting to fire and you feel like the momentum's with you and then he gets sent off that that I can see being quite demoralizing quite stunting in terms of momentum but um, yeah who knows looking at Liverpool overall and, and sort of them in with sort of respect to the game they had midweek as well uh, a really really good week for Liverpool who not only got a massive 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 win here and kind of just reminded everyone that they were the big dogs but sort of did that already in midweek by you know just punishing the team that a lot of people have sort of been romancing about this season Spurs 2-1 um and I think you know despite the fact that Mourinho made the claim that the better team lost they very comfortably beat Spurs um and I think it's interesting to see Liverpool doing what they haven't had to do for a long, long time, which is defend the, you know, defend the title, defend their status as champions. Um, I think they had a slightly rockier start to the season than anyone might have expected, but I think that's true of all teams in the league because of a the very short break and circumstances and everything that's going on in the world. But now that things have started to get into motion a little bit, they're very, very, very confidently showing that they are still the, the you know the big boys. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the only thing I would say is that, you know, this Liverpool-Tottenham game in midweek, that very much could have gone either way. The winner came in the 90th minute, um, Spurs had some great chances, and, you know, I think, to me, the change that I've noticed, and I think this transitions to our next game, which which involves Spurs, um, the big thing I noticed was that the same game plan was being carried out by Mourinho, but the fact that Harry Kane is not his prolific best right now meant that they just didn't capitalise on the chances they had and therefore didn't win the game. Because, you know, it's not new that Spurs will have, like, less than a quarter of the possession during a game. It's not new that they'll be outshot, like, 12 goals to three. But it is new that they won't be incredibly ruthless in front of goal. And I think maybe what we're learning is that that kind of ruthless efficiency is not maintainable unless you are, like, the best player in the world. Harry Kane is a very good player, but he's not the best in the world. 
I, th- I think that's a fantastic uh, place for us to move into our next game, which was Spurs hosting Leicester and losing 2-0. Um, and I think you've touched on a point there that I, I really want to get into because Spurs this season have looked, I don't want to say uncharacteristically good, but certainly at times they've looked like they could go ahead and, and win the whole thing. Obviously, we're only 14 games in, and in these last few games, they've maybe you know reminded everyone that they're not really a contender. But there have been times, there have been murmurs, people have been looking at it. Obviously, it's Jose Mourinho as well. He's a very experienced winner. Is this going to be the thing? And I think, you know, yeah, they they kind of rely so heavily on Harry Kane and Hume Son that when they come up against a team that can deal with them a little bit, it, it's just very, very difficult for them to move anywhere else. And I would slightly push back. I mean... Look, the, the game was 2-1 against Liverpool. And obviously, in a game that finishes with a one-goal margin, yes, it could have gone either way, especially when it's a 90-minute goal. But I think the underlying story of that game was that Liverpool battered them. I, I thought that Jose Mourinho coming out and being like the better team lost was peak Mourinho. There's not a chance they should have won that game. Um, they obviously could have got lucky because anything could happen in football. But I was just like, you were lucky it was just two, man. Yeah, I mean, they definitely had their backs against the wall for for large parts of the game. But, you know, they fought right to the end. And I do also remember Harry Kane missing a really good chance. Um, that's the one that sticks out to me. But I'm sure there were others as well, that um, one or two that opportunities that they um, could and should have um, made their own. And the, the same was true for this Leicester game. Harry Kane misses a great, great chance from a corner right at the beginning of the game. And... Spurs just never really kicked off after that. Leicester took control and um, got two with no reply. Yeah, and, and when Spurs finally did kick it into gear, it was really late on. It was a very late scramble to try and get back into the game. And by that point, it was too late. And I just think, you know, Mourinho is often characterised as this manager who sort of loves to part the bus and he approaches these big games in that fashion. And often it works really well. He's obviously won the Premier League a bunch of times. He's won several different tournaments. He's won the Champions League. He's one of... He's probably not the most decorated active manager around, but he's, he's certainly up there. He's one of, like, top three at least. And, oh, absolutely. You know, what's interesting to look at that now is, is this something that gets found out a little bit when you don't have the tons and tons and tons of quality that a side like Chelsea 0304 or Inter 0910 had? Um, you know, where those sides, obviously, yes, could put in a really good defensive shift, but had absolutely lethal forwards. Um you know, beyond just the the two guys that, you know, that, that Mourinho has at Spurs, which is Kane and Son. I really would love to see Spurs think about what they need to do on that right side. Because at the moment, if you're able to commit, we talked about a couple of weeks ago how teams have been picked apart by sort of having to decide whether to play that low block and sort of deal with Kane or play a high line and then get picked apart by Son. If you're a team that has enough tactical now to sort of stop both those things, Something that would be even more confounding is to go, ah, here's option number, here's option C, uh, or number three. And I don't know that Spurs have that. That right side, you know, in that front three that they have changes so often and is so weird. Sometimes it's Steven Bergvine who looks really good, but hasn't really had enough of a run to put together a, a case for himself as a great player. Gareth Bale obviously got signed and everyone was really excited about, but has been in and out. They played Lo Celso on the right-hand side in this game against Leicester, which was a bizarre bit of tactics from, from Rio, I thought, but. You know, it's for teams like Leicester, who've been one of the best, you know, organised and most well-drilled sides this season, who were able to sort of take advantage of the fact that if you cut off certain angles for Harry Kane and you make sure that Son doesn't have the space he wants to behind defenders, Spurs don't have another answer. 
No, they don't. And um, it's interesting because, to my mind, Spurs have really like stagnated tactically. Um, they brought in a player like Gareth Bale. And in my mind, I thought that he would operate more as an attacking midfielder than a target man. He's been given the number nine shirt. And every time he plays, he's almost like further forward than Harry Kane at times. Mm. And instead of playing as a second striker, I think he should be operating in that midfield role that he took on towards the end of his first um, stint at Spurs, where he was playing number 10, he was creating a lot of chances. He's got a great pass on him, um, and I think yeah. that's where he should be. And, and you look at these decisions, like to play Tange Ndombele at attacking mid, and as you mentioned, Lacelso on the right-hand side as a winger, baffles me, especially when you're coming up across against a team like Leicester, who will hit you on the counter. And I thought, I for one, like, I do like Jose Mourinho, but it's very much a love-hate relationship. Um, like I, I also very much love to hate him, and I very much enjoyed the fact that he basically got beaten at his own game on his own turf. Um, Leicester came and had less possession, and they won with a penalty and an own goal. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get a more Mourinho scoreline result if you wanted to, unless it was 1-0. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Certainly true in terms of like the result and how the goals happened. I did think Leicester played really fluidly, and I think they are not an undersung, but like people have been talking about how much they like to watch Leeds this season. People have been talking about how much they like to watch Liverpool. I've really enjoyed watching Leicester and the way they play. They play some really nice football. They've got really well-defined roles for everyone on their team. Every time they have the ball in the midfield, there's three men free. They're pinging the ball around in these perfect triangles. It's the kind of thing that... If a top, if, if City were doing it, for example, you would not hear the end of the creaming on, you know, from the pundits post game. And Leicester are doing it. I think they look amazing now that James Madison's getting a more regular role. Obviously, he was sort of in and out with injuries. But when they've got that midfield of Madison, Tielemans, and Ndidi, it's just like, oh, the balance and just the, the way that they play is so enjoyable. The fact that, you know, they look this good with Mark Albrighton on the right hand side, which no offense to Mark Albrighton, he's clearly earned a spot there. But the fact that he's able to incorporate himself into that system is just, you know, they're a joyous side to watch when they, when they do it right. And they did in this game, I thought. So yes, despite the fact that it was, you know, two nil and a penalty and a own goal, uh, I did think they played really well. And we're maybe unlucky. I, I, I would say unlucky not to get a third as well with the uh, Madison goal that was ruled offside. Uh, did, you, did you have a take on that or? I mean, the, the goal itself or just, just their midfield in, in general. I mean, well, it, I haven't looked at it properly. I just kind of rolled my eyes. Was sad that VAR had ruled out um, another goal that I had enjoyed watching go in um, <laughs> and moved on. I, I didn't properly um, look at the intricacies. It looked like it was very close, and it looked like it was kind of the top of his shoulder again. So, I, I mean, it could go either way. See, I, um, I, I had the protractor out. I, I printed out the thing, <laughs> had the protractor out, drawing fine lines. I was like, you know what? Fuck you, VAR. If you're going to get all surgical with this, so will I. <laughs> It's uh, incredibly um, pedantic of you, and I admire that about you. Um, <laughs> but no, it's interesting to hear you say about um, Leicester's midfield balance, because I actually think that it's something that they've been struggling with. And the reason why I've thought that is maybe because James Madison without, was out with injury, and mm. Tielemans occupied his spot in, t in the kind of creative number 10 role. And then when James Madison started to come back, I felt like he was really struggling for consistency and form. Um, and I thought maybe the reason why that was happening was because he and Tielemans didn't really know how to play together just yet because Tielemans was used to having to play 
Madison's Madison's role when he was out and then Madison comes back and they're not quite sure what they're doing with each other Um, which is why yes they play some great football and and they look great against Spurs but they also lost 2-0 to Everton um, in midweek so I think that you know this this game might indicate that they're starting to to get to know each other's games a little bit better because I do think as you mentioned they have at least the potential for a really good balanced midfield. And well, the reason I would say that the balance worked better in this game is that there's a third player in that midfield who I think contributes to it. In the game when they lost to Everton and some of the other games they've had this season, Wilfred Ndidi has had to play as an auxiliary centre back, which means that Nampolis Mendy has played in that sort of you know defensive pivot. Whereas in this game, Ndidi was able to play there, and I think Nampolis Mendy is a good player, but I think Wilfred Ndidi is absolutely top quality. So when he's playing in that role, it allows a much more free relationship between Madison and Tielemans to sort of focus on just playing the balls not having to worry too much about defensive shift and coming back obviously that's still a part of their game but I think it was it was kind of just an aspect of or sort of kind of just a case of everything coming together perfectly and this has been the thing with Leicester the whole season you could easily forget it because they've been doing so well but they have had a real like ramshackle putting together what works because players are out having to play players like Wesley Fofana who incidentally has come on a bit amazing but you know, it's rare that we've been able to see them play all the players they would want to. And I think that is probably going to be what their final midfield will look like by the end of the season. It, or, or if, you know, if everyone's still fit, I might be wrong. They might go completely opposite direction, sign someone in January, who knows. But if I was a, a gambling man, I would say that that midfield trio of Madison, Tielemans and Ndidi is what, they, what they'll be going for. And certainly on the evidence of this game, what they should be going for. Yeah, good point. And I think it makes the fact that they are second in the table at the moment all the more impressive. Um, And yeah, I think that there's a lot of potential in there. They've just got to make sure everyone stays fit and they'll be hoping they do because they take on Manchester United on Saturday. We'll be very interested to see how that goes. Yeah, a very interesting game that's going to be between two very informed teams. I think it'll also be interesting to see how Leicester's season pans out because, you know, as we discussed at the back end of last year, Brendan Rodgers' strength is always the start and his weakness is always sticking the landing. They always do well at the beginning of the season, Brendan Rodgers' teams, and steam on well into March. And then when crunch time comes is when things start to fall away a bit. And all of a sudden, third place was yours to lose, yours to lose and you're fifth. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see because I do think also football isn't played on paper, but just in terms of on-paper squads, Leicester's not good enough to be second relative to the other big six teams. And yet they're absolutely deservedly second based on their performances. So it's not like they've got lucky loads of times. And they have lost some games, but they've still pulled out some big wins. Um, the question is, is that a case of them riding their luck? Is that a question of... Or, or not even luck, but is that a question of them, you know, having surprisingly good games? Or is it just morale's really, really high at the start of the season and the sort of Brendan depression is going to come in at the back end? I'm really interested to see what they do because there are a lot of players to like in that team. Like I said, I really enjoy watching them play. Um, and I think... If Brendan can crack the end of the season rush, then they'll be a really, really threatening team. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Two other clubs which we are struggling to take our eyes off at the moment. Manchester United took on Leeds and came out 6-2 the winners. (laughs) And this was the kind of game... I just, I mean, I know you know this and I know you agree with this anyway, but I spent, not just on this podcast, but in my real life, the better part of like three months talking about how excited I was for Marcelo Bielsa to come into the Premier League. And he just, there's not been one disappointing week of it. They're just a team of lunatics. They really are. And, and no more is that relevant now when in the last two games, they won 5-2 and then lost 6-2 in the space of four days, totaling 
15 goals in two games. I mean, it's, that is surely unheard of in the Premier so League. It's so good. And all, like, in this post-match interview, the journalists were like, oh, you know, 6-2 loss, that's not great. Are you going to consider changing your style? And he was just like, no, why would I change my style of play? And I just think fair play. Like, Leeds are a team that have come up, and I'm, I'm going to get rid of my, my massive man crush for Bielsa in a second, we'll talk about United and, and the game itself, but just, like, to come up, look at the other two teams that have come up, West Brom and Fulham, have struggled, have struggled, Leeds have run headfirst into every single game they've gone. Sometimes it's worked, sometimes it's not. As you say, you know, no better characterised than this week alone, where they've won 5-2 and lost 6-2 in the space of four days. Both ends of the spectrum, absolutely bonkers. And in this game, you know, you would think that the players didn't know what the score was at 6-1 down, because they were still going forward. Even at 6-2, scored that amazing goal, kept going for it, kept going for it. I think it was Gary Neville who said, like, this game was 6-2, it could have easily been 6-6, it could have been 15-7, because that's just the kind of game it was. I think United did really, really well to, to answer to the fact that Leeds are bonkers and took full advantage by hitting early. But I just, it it speaks volumes to me that the reaction to this game for a lot of people was, oh man, I can't believe Leeds have lost 6-2 at Old Trafford, that's a bit of a shame. You, They've been here for less than five months, and you would forget that they haven't been here for 16 years. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they're definitely um, fighting tooth and nail with anyone they can get their grubby mitts on. Um, and yeah, such an exciting game to watch. And you're definitely not going to be falling asleep at halftime um, during one of Bielsa's games anytime soon. Um, so it's always fun to watch, especially like a, a club like Manchester United, because you never really know what kind of eleven and what kind of attitude is going to um, take to the field each week. So um like a real feast for the eyes this one was and let's just start off who knew Scott McTominay had that in, in him not me nor, nor I nor I um, a, a weaponous two goals in the space of two minutes that Frank Lampard would have been proud of um, not to be outdone they were 4-0 up after 37 minutes is this you know are we seeing Manchester United coming together better in attack are we seeing them turning a corner or is this just another flare up um, that we've seen already, and is this just another false dawn? Well, I, I was just about to say, you, you know, what you often like to say about United is they're a team with plenty of false dawns, which I think is definitely true. They do have that in them. Um, and they looked really, really solid here, and despite all the criticism of Ole, a lot of which I think is justified, you know, but despite all that, they're third place with a game in hand. Um, and, and yes, they're a team with a lot of false dawns, but if you take a step back from, you know, the individual performances, because I think that's United are such a big team... And they're so, they're like media bait, basically. And every time they do something good, it gets overhyped to being, man, United are back, let's get it. And every time they lose a game, it's like, Ole's an absolute moron, blah, blah, blah. It gets like hyped into oblivion. So I think sometimes the best way to look at a team like this is to just take a big step back and look at things, you know, in a wider context. And I think looking at Man United under Ole in that fashion, they finished third place last season. Now, obviously, every Man United fan, every Man United player, every Man United member of staff isn't satisfied with that. They want to be winning leagues as soon as possible. But it's key to note that that is the highest post-Ferguson finish that they've had outside of, you know, Jose Mourinho's trademark second season. And again here, they're third, a game in hand. They've been getting some good results. Obviously, there have been some bad results, like the 6-1 loss to Spurs. But they've been getting some other good results. They've, you know, drawn with City, which just wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago. That would have been a loss. And, you know, I think... They are maybe showing another false dawn, but maybe looking at it from a slightly more long-term perspective, things are starting to come together. I don't know if it's completely Ole or if it's just that they've slowly over time, 
you know, brought in enough players and like 20% of each incoming group has been good, but they've sort of sold the players and kept the 20% and kept bringing them in, kept bringing them in, kept bringing them in. And now we're sort of seeing enough of the players that have stayed on that are good, that it's working out um, or, or what it is. But I do think that maybe this is, you know, enough false dawns and eventually the room's lit up and maybe that's what's starting to happen now. Well, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's been an expensive, long process, but it will surely come to an end at some point because Manchester United are too big to fail, I think. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It, the signs are good, right? Um, it's They're an exciting team at the moment um, and looking forward to seeing where they end up. I think, yeah, they've put themselves in a great position uh, in, the last, in the first um, 10, 15 games of the season so far. I wouldn't be shocked, and this is partly because some of the you know t- typical teams that challenge them are having sort of up and down seasons. Chelsea obviously are still figuring out where they are. Um, Man City are having a bit of a weird season. I wouldn't go as far as say bad, but it's definitely not sort of the typical thing they do where they're always always keeping pace. But you wouldn't be shocked based on how the season has gone so far if United finished second. You'd be shocked if they won, but if they finished second behind Liverpool, that wouldn't be that surprising. You might disagree, but in my opinion, that wouldn't be that surprising. And I think that says a huge amount because this time last year, if someone said, are United going to finish second at Ole? They'd say absolutely no chance. Definitely. I mean, there's there's this perceived fragility of Manchester United under Ole and, and that is becoming more and more outdated with each big win that they have and with each week that passes and, and they look more solid. Um, I, I definitely agree with that. I also want to just have a um, a quick ode to Luke Shaw because I think at the beginning of the season, if anyone thought that he'd be keeping Alex Tejas out of the lineup, um, I would have slapped them around the face and given them a drug test. <laughs> and yet, no, for no, and, for, and for... yet, and yet here he is. Meanwhile, the uh, the hunt for Donny van der Beek continues with uh, no signs of life found so far. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the crazy thing about that is, you, you know, it kind of depends on how a club is run, right? You can look at the way that players like Cavani and van der Beek haven't yet been fully used to their full potential. Cavani's come in a little bit, but I think still we could see a lot more from him. You can either view that as like, oh, United are like not fully using their squad, but you can also go, well, if they're not really using those players, they're already winning 6-2. Is this like the mid-season thing where they whip out their trap cards because Liverpool think they're better than them? And they go, ha-ha, you didn't expect these players that I've been keeping in my back pocket the whole time. Could be the way. Well, it could be. I mean, I think the only thing that the other the other thing that it is to me is just that I don't think Ole is a confident man at the moment, and I think sometimes that does come across in the way that he sets up his teams. And I think that it maybe shows that he'd rather stick with someone who is tried and tested and like he knows the output of really well versus someone who probably has a higher upside. In definitely in terms of like Cavani, surely you think that he's going to do a better job at striker than a lot of the options that they've tried so far this season, or even Luke Shaw for Alex Tejas. Um, yeah. He's just not willing to take a gamble at the moment. So maybe, yeah, t- t- you know, maybe when he does feel a little bit stable, a little bit more, you know, confirmed, comfortable in his position, that we will we see a renaissance and these players will start to come out of the woodwork that haven't had the opportunity yet. And if they do, Manchester United are a fearsome prospect. They definitely are. And I wonder if, you know, ironically enough, because this is something that United fans are absolutely lamenting, and I'm sure the club were themselves as well. I wonder if when we look back at United's season at the end of the, the campaign, if they'll look favourably upon being knocked out of the Champions League at an early stage. 
Well, maybe. Um, it, it could well be that that's a blessing in disguise, for sure. Definitely could be. Next, we have Eustace Trivia. Uh, Rupert, I started last week. Would you like to kick us off this week? Cameron, I'd love to. Um, in honour of uh, certain happenings through the week, which we will be talking about, um, such as the sacking of Slavon Bilic and the appointment of Sam Allardyce, I thought it would be a nice time to take a look at another sacking, which um, defies belief a little bit, and I think um, sometimes goes unmentioned, and it really shouldn't, which was that of um, England manager Glenn Hoddle in 1999. Have you come across okay. this much? Uh, yes, but I'm, I'm sure not in the context that you're going to be discussing it. Um, so yeah, just uh, just thought it'd be um, you know I'd tell a little story this week um, on while England were preparing for the Euros in 2000 and amidst the fallout of the previous World Cup, um, Glenn Hoddle gave an interview with the Times um, in an attempt to try and like defend his um, stance as manager, uh, in which he implied that. People with disabilities are in that position because oh. yeah, um, <laughs> they uh, they had like behaved horribly in a past life. Oh, that's um, so bad. Which I mean, <laughs> ba- defies belief. I the main thing that shocks me is that I came across this story not uh, not too long ago, and just the fact that he's still used as a pundit. Why is this guy anywhere near the TV? Why is this guy still being asked for his opinion? Um, when he he came out and said that, um, you know, people also, are disabled because they're being punished for sins in a former life. Bizarre. I'm also not sure, um, I'm not a, th- uh, uh, a theologist, but I'm also not sure that any major religion has that, like, in, in, in its scripture, that if you behave badly, you'll become disabled in your next life. I don't know what religion Glenn Hoddle is, but I'm pretty confident off the top of my head that whatever religion he is doesn't have that belief. Well, I mean, all I can think is, like, it's like some bootlegged version of reincarnation, which which does, in its defence, say that... Um... You know, if if you don't lead a good life, then you'll come back worse than before. But it's it's more kind of in the in the spirit of like coming back as a different animal rather than <laughs> coming back in a wheelchair. Um, well, that's the thing because it implies that like being disabled is inherently like you, you're a, you're being part. I don't know. It's just such a weird take. It's the kind of thing like I'm assuming that Glenn Hoddle's church is actually held in the back of a van by a guy who who can't read. Uh, unbelievable, yeah. But there was a um, a sentence that I particularly enjoyed, which I will read off and uh, to finish the story, which was, um, after the interview, Hoddle stated that he was not prepared to resign and claimed his words were misinterpreted and pointed out his contributions and commitment to organisations helping disabled people. The Football Association terminated Hoddle's contract on the 2nd of February 1999, which was welcomed by representatives of disabled organisations and groups that support disabled um, groups. <laughs> there you go Jesus Christ well a, a, an interesting story uh, if uh, a little bit unsavory but um, a, a good one to, to note nonetheless I've got um, an instance of myself being not unsavory but certainly sour about many things in the game as you and, and listeners will know um, I love a good penalty shootout but one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire game of football is when teams have defenders in their first five 
Um, unless it's like a specialist like Leighton Baines or Sergio Ramos, it always irks me when players that don't dedicate as much of their time to putting the ball in the back of the net are ahead in the you know the penalty order than those that do. And I, I, don't get me wrong, I like it when I see someone like Manuel Neuer who can hit a good penalty there, but defenders and keepers that don't have it, I'm always just like, either the striker and midfielders aren't you know nutting up and doing their job, or the defenders are just pushing ahead of them. And every time I watch a shootout and some right back puts it wide, the people who I'm watching it with are just like, here he goes again. <laughs> that being said, credit where credit is due then to the defenders and keepers that do rise to the occasion uh, and prove my very sour person wrong. As was the story in a game in the Argentinian fourth division between Juventud Alianza and General Paz Juniors in the qualifying round for the playoffs at the end of the season. The sides had tied over the two legs and thus went to penalties to see who had to progress to the next round, uh, which is, you know, pretty unspectacular. The reason this is my useless trivia for the week is because this game has the curious honour of being the highest recorded score in a, in a professional penalty shootout, with juniors winning the game 21-20 on the night. What was even more amazing was that there was only one missed penalty, which was the final for Alianza, meaning that up to that point, every single player had scored. Which begs the question, given that I haven't seen the game myself, 4th Division Argentinian football's notably hard to get a hand on, was it great penalties or terrible keepers? Yeah, that's mad. That's absolutely wild. 40 penalties went in before one was missed. It's a lot of penalties. Um, penalties. What is um? Do you know? Do you have to hand the statistic for what percentage of penalties are missed generally? It's like five percent, ten percent. I I don't off the top of my head, but I imagine it's yeah, probably from a penalty shootout, probably higher because obviously they just get missed more generally, and also it's not specialists taking them. But um, I think you know from from normal penalties, probably like five percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, fourteen in a row is a bit of an anomaly, isn't it? Bit, bit of an outlier. Just, were they all just lashing them top corner, or were the keepers just not up to scratch? I, I don't know. I, I I also have not seen it. Um, yeah, that is uh, pretty spectacular, isn't it? The world of football never ceases to amaze. Um, the one thing I will say in defence of goalkeepers and defenders who do take penalties, and I think I might have said it before on the podcast, but still to this day, the greatest penalty I've ever seen in my life was scored by Thibaut Courtois against PSG in a um, a pre uh, pre-season game. Yeah, look, when, when it's done well, I'm more than happy with it. But it just it seems to me a lot of the time when I watch these these penalty shootouts, I'll see like Real Madrid. I, I remember specifically there being one with like Real Madrid having Danny Carvajal take their second penalty, and he just put it so far wide. And I was like, "What are you doing? You have so many players that can take penalties, and regularly do, every team has like three or four regular penalty takers. A defender, unless they're one of those players, shouldn't be in your first five, in my opinion." <laughs> yeah, it is a weird one, and definitely personally, you know, whenever I see. For example, in um, when you're watching England, whenever you see someone like Eric Dyer step up, just a little part of me gets very, very nervous. I'm just like, here we go. Um, <laughs> so, um, moving into our final segment for the episode, just a, a short little, um, you know, impassioned case I want to make. I'm just going to start us off with a quote. The players will respect him. He's a big man. He's Big Sam. You see him on the television? He fills the screen. You are looking for the board with the sponsors' names behind? Where have they gone? You can't see them. That was a quote by former West Brom manager Slaven Bilic in 2016, who ironically and perhaps comically has been replaced by the man that he has uh, complimented there. 
it's it's a real it's a backhanded compliment if ever I saw one <laughs> for sure. So yeah, so so last week you punched up a bit and made the case that while well, Alex Ferguson was a great manager, um, there were cracks in his legacy that ought to be considered, which I thought was a really really interesting uh, argument. I was very interested in hearing it. I thought you made a lot of good points. This week, as like the contrarian I am, I'm going to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum to make a case for a gaffer I think is too widely considered to be talentless. Here's the hill I'm prepared to die on this week. I believe that Sam Allardyce is a criminally underrated manager and is actually one of the best in the business at what he does. Go on. So, just just a little little preface first, because I, I find the existence of people like Sam Allardyce really interesting culturally, because it doesn't seem to be as much of a thing in other leagues. In the Premier League, more than any other league in the world, we seem to have this culture of turning to the same handful of managers whenever things are going wrong. In the last decade alone, for example, Sam Allardyce, Tony Pulis, Alan Pardew, and Roy Hodgson have all managed both West Brom and Crystal Palace. That's in 10 years. That's like, that's a very, very quick turnover and all of them matter the same. And it really yeah, does that seem is, like, is a crazy stat, isn't it? That's quite a weird one, right? At every club, it seems like when a club is in danger, they just have like a big red button on the director's desk that speed dials one of these guys. I would add maybe like Harry Redknapp to that as well. Um, Harry Redknapp is, is absolutely speed dial number one. He's like surely the go-to, um, especially when you're <laughs> worried about relegation. Exactly. Um, and I think, you know, these managers often get lumped together because of the fact they've had very similar, you know, managerial careers in terms of where they've gone and sort of how they get. They're all characterized by being sort of like firefighter managers. Um, they're also characterized by what's perceived to be quite a negative style of football, often 10 men behind the ball and never scoring more than one goal per game. But I think that to a degree, and Big Sam in particular, this is a much, you know, maligned group of gaffers. Big Sam is always trying to fight against this perception of him, and he's saying, I'm not a long ball manager. I saw a very funny quote by him when he was talking about people accusing him playing long ball football, and he said, like, if one of the top six sides hits a 50-yard pass, it's a cultured long, it's a cultured, like, pass, whereas if I do it, it's just hoof it and hope it. <laughs> I just thought it was quite funny. You know, and and he's true. I do agree with that. I mean, I think... um even watching the the James Madison goal against and that was disallowed against Tottenham, that was a a great pass in my mind from a centre back that went fifty yards all the way onto the other end of the pitch, and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, fair play. Yeah, no, I think, and you know it's it's funny because he has a lot of quotes like that. One of my favourite other ones that he had was coming out when he was like, "If my name was Sam Aladici, I'd be managing Manchester United because I'm called yeah, Sam." Yeah, that's that's maybe my favourite one from him. But I think you know the thing with managers like this, Big Sam in particular. And this is my case of defence for him. I'm not going to sit here and disagree that he plays football that is not always appealing. But in my mind, it's kind of like working at a company that's about to get on, you know, about to go under. You might not like it if all of a sudden Twitter gets banned on the office computers and your lunch hours slashed to 30 minutes. But if you keep your job at the end, it all might be worth it. And I think a lot of players who have worked with him actually have a lot of good things to say about him. Patrick van Arnholt who worked with him, said tactics-wise he was one of the best managers of my career. He has a huge influence on me. He's old-fashioned, but it works. Stephen Warnock, uh, who has played you know, a couple of hundred games in the Premier League, came out and said that um, you know, when he came in, a lot of the players there were sort of gulping at the idea of Big Sam coming in. One of the Italian players who was there was like, oh, come on, I want to play football. I don't want to play what this guy's going to bring. And after the first uh, you know, training session, they all left, were so impressed with him. That next day, their first game under Big Sam, they beat Stoke 3-0. So I think, you know, he's one of those guys that, in my opinion, gets much maligned. And I just want to take a quick look at his managerial record as not just a firefighter manager, but the best firefighter manager there is, which is my my little, you know, shrine to him as the best manager. Nice. The best firefighter manager. Uh, so let's start with his record. 
Obviously, the number one thing that is on his CV and always comes up when he takes a new job, he's never taken a team down in his career. It's pretty impressive when you consider that his appointment usually comes around, as we discussed, because a team is under threat of going down. So never has he come in, a team's completely on fire, he always manages to steady the ship. Looking at some of It's the a strong CV, isn't it? It's a strong CV, and he always comes to these teams. Looking at some of them, um, some of these differences between where clubs were on his arrival and where they ended up, and this might not sound glamorous, but just think about the teams that he came into, and certainly West Brom now. Uh, when he took the Blackburn job in December 2008, the team were in 19th place, and he managed to take them to 15th and safety. Coming into the job at a turbulent Sunderland, they too were 19th. Sam managed to steer them to safety at 17th. Joining Crystal Palace in December 2016, the team sat in 17th. They ended the season in 14th place. And when Everton began their approach of Sam Allardyce in November 2017, which is a stint of Sam's career, I feel like everyone just forgets, myself included sometimes, that he managed Everton. But when they began to approach him, they were 17th in the table. and they finished Yeah, I completely season. forgot it as well until I looked more into him. Yeah, but they, they were 17th when they began to approach him. They finished that season in 8th place. And then Sam left because they were like, oh, the football's no good. But it took you from 17th to 8th. Um... I do think, you know, he needs praise because this is a really consistent record. It's really, really impressive to me. Taking over a club is never easy. Even when you come into a side that's been really, really solid or even successful in recent years, there are difficulties in a manager's first season. We see this all the time at Chelsea. We've seen it to an extent at um, City when they've sort of changed hands at managers. There's always been a bit of a rocky period beginning with, uh, you know, even Pep, I think, finished fourth in his first year, which for City is, is not great. But Sam consistently comes to these clubs where everything's on fire and manages to immediately guard him to safety consistently, reliably. Um, you know, he came into Everton and like I said, they were 17th and he did get criticised because they ranked 20th for total shots that season and 19th for shots on target, but went from 17th to 8th, enjoyed a seven-game unbeaten run when he joined and managed to keep several clean sheets at the same time. Uh, players who have played with him almost always have the same story like I was talking about with, with Stephen Warnock. They get really, really nervous he's coming in, they're going to play negative football, but then they leave with a really interesting appreciation of the game. And I think, you know... I'm going to quote the big man himself in a second, but just before I do, I just want to put my spin on it. I think it's really important in a game that is so built around being exciting and doing this, 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 this. And yes, we all love watching Manchester City and Liverpool do it. But for these other teams, it's not always possible. And sometimes you do see teams like Norwich, for example, try and do it and fail. And there are teams that try and do it and succeed, like Leeds, which I think they should be absolutely praised for. But in my mind, I don't really think there's much of a difference in terms of like lack of entertainment when I watch them between like a Bournemouth and a Norwich. Both of them, by the time of the end of last season, I was kind of just like, get out of the league. And Norwich were trying to win games, but they just got hammered more than they didn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it's such an impressive record that he has. And um, trying to look through some of the other managers that you have mentioned. I actually used to think that Harry Redknapp had never been relegated either, but he has been. Um, although he has also had a pretty impressive track record of um, keeping teams up. And yeah, just um, it's interesting to know. I mean, when you're doing your research for Sam Allardyce, was there any sort of indication as to why he always has this air about him, despite the fact that it's not the case for everyone that works with him? So which air is this, do you mean? Sorry, the the fact that all players are scared to play with him until they play with him. Yeah, no, I think I think that's because he has this sort of there's this idea around him that you're not going to be playing football. But I think if you're a fan of a team that you know fans who are listening to this who are fans of a top half team are really not going to be familiar with the grind of having to just put in hard yards and get the one ones and get the gritty nil nils and do that stuff just to be safe. 
But the fans who have had a manager like Sam Allardyce will undoubtedly see the value in having someone just come in and do that. And just to quote Sam Allardyce, because I think this sort of encapsulates his philosophy really well, and it's part of the reason I would actually be really interested to see him at a top side, which I'll move into in a second with my whole England thing. But just to quote him here, you have to entertain as well as win. I understand that. But this is eroding the basics of the game, because if you give the ball away in your own half, you're going to fail miserably. What's your job as a centre-half? At the moment, everyone seems to think it's to play out from the back, which goes out against all the principles ever taught in football. Too many players giving the ball away in their own half. It's fine if you have the best players in the world, because you're going to do it better than anyone else. If you don't, it's very difficult. And I do think it's interesting, because we have seen a trend in the Premier League for everyone in the league to kind of just imitate what the top the top teams are doing. We saw it when Chelsea switched to that 3-5-2, and all of a sudden everyone tried to emulate it to varying levels of success. Ever since Pep Guardiola's come in, we've seen this whole sort of not just Pep, but a lot of people go, oh, we've got to have ball-playing centre-backs, ball-playing centre-back. And it costs a lot of teams' games as a result. So I think there is respect to be had for Sam's, you know, defiance to following the trends and going, listen, I know what I'm good at. I'm going to stick to it. I've never taken a team down. For what it's worth, I also think he would have been a great England manager. He still has a 100% record. I think he was quite unfairly dismissed. And I think that England, at the time he took over, were kind of like the international version of a team <laughs> worrying about going down. Things were all over the place. And I'd really like to see England uh, under a few more games uh, with Sam. Yeah, I mean, it definitely would have been interesting to see how he approached that job. Sadly, he only had, I think, it was about two months there. Um, and one game before um, these these allegations came out from... Um, you know, I think it was him implying that um, like a lot of tapping up of young players happened and, and was allowed to happen, things like that. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that you wish that he was given the chance to manage a bigger side because while he hasn't been able to manage you know, the biggest sides, like your, your Manchester City's, Man United's, Chelsea's, Liverpool's, things like that, he did get the chance at Everton in 2017-18 and he did a great job. Um, you know, yeah. he... he uh, they finished eighth that season, um, but the reason he left was because fans were unhappy with, with the style of play. So, you know, does that indicate that he has a ceiling imposed on him by his his lack of entertainment? Yeah, I think it does. And I think that that is kind of weirdly... I, I, I don't know, I, I just think that not to completely jump on the Big Sam bandwagon here and subscribe to everything he says, but I do think there's a degree of that that's just kind of unfair because we will look at sides like Wolves last season for example or several Jose Mourinho teams and people will praise them to the hills and back for being well drilled and you know not flimsy at the back and you know Wolves last season didn't play a lot of you know fantastically exciting attacking games but people sort of marveled at the fact that they were able to keep a defense together and you know put it together but for some reason when Sam Allardyce did it with Everton he, you know it's a results business finishing eighth should be a fantastic fantastic instead it was a get out the club which is just you know maybe he should change his name to Allardyceo <laughs> so to flip around, do you think that if um, Jose Mourinho was um, Joe Murin from Barnet, then uh, he wouldn't have a chance in hell of managing Real Madrid? Um, not with the way his, you know, if, if, if instead of Porto, he'd been starting off managing, you know, his, his local Barnet, and he'd been trying to play sort of 10 behind the ball, he, uh, you know, might have made it all the way to the heady heights of managing West Ham, but he'd never have got the tapper from Real Madrid, no. Interesting stuff. Um, Sam Allardyce, <laughs> much maligned. Um, you I'd, found I'd love your to place. Ages, uh, <laughs> but we've got we've got relatively little time left. But uh, that's that's my case for this week. You wanted to um, you know not damage but but contextualize Alex Ferguson's legacy. I wish to to contextualize, contextualize Big Sam's legacy. Uh, I think he's a manager who doesn't get anywhere near the amount of respect he deserves. Well, and there also, you go. 
he, he drinks a pint of wine with his dinner and, and if that doesn't deserve respect <laughs> I don't know what does Sam if you're listening um, just know that you will always have a, a place in Cameron's house for a hot meal and some adulation absolutely absolutely he will um, shall we resolve guessing game yeah, let's. Um, this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, I've got one guess, and if it's not him, then I'm not 100% sure that I'm going to get this one. Uh, well, you've got a question as well. I do have a question. Um, so, would you like to take your first guess? And I'll, I'll read out the clues again for the, the listeners. Um, Please do. So, this player has won the Footballer of the Year for their nation a record eight times, and is widely considered to be the best player from this country ever. However, you might say the competition is slightly less fierce than for other countries, since this nation is the youngest country to occupy the FIFA Top 10 rankings. When initially signed by the club he still plays for, he was voted as the worst signing of the season by the largest sports publication in the country. Despite that undesirable accolade, this player went on to win, amongst other things, a UEFA Men's Player of the Year award, a Champions League, and a World Cup Golden Ball. Rupert, do you have a guess? Yeah, I, I do. Um, it, I thought I knew who it was based on the first two, mm-hmm. and then this this golden ball has kind of thrown me, but I think it could still be him. Um, okay. I was thinking about the youngest country in the top ten FIFA rankings, countries that I think are still quite young, but are in my mind in the top ten. I don't know the top ten all the way off the top of my head. Okay, I thought walk, Croatia... Walk Okay. I thought I thought of Croatia, and when you talked about how the he was the worst voted the worst player by a, a publication in the country, I thought of you know the just the the toxicness of Madrid and the mm-hmm. way that that um, you know often can turn completely change players' careers. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's Luka Modric. It is indeed Luka Modric. Congratulations to you. Uh, I slightly uh, tried to not give away too much. My hint was going to be he also has a Ballon d'Or, and I thought the World Cup Golden Ball might have might have thrown you. Did you? So, so you thought it was Luka Modric all along? I thought it was Luka Modric after the first two clues, and then as soon as you said World Cup Golden Ball, I was trying to remember whether or not he'd won one. I. I thought he there was a chance he might have done, but initially I was like, oh, well, that's Luka Modric out the water then. Who the yeah. heck is it? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he, he did at the most recent World Cup, of course, where Croatia reached the World Cup final. Croatia is the youngest country to occupy the FIFA top 10 rankings, uh, having only been recognised as a national team following the independence from Yugoslavia. Uh, well, the independence from Yugoslavia was a different time, but recognised the football team in 1994. Uh, and when initially signed by Real Madrid, which you were correct, he, that is the team, he was voted as the worst signing of the season, uh, joint, I believe, with Alex Song by Marsa, uh, who are the largest sports publication in Spain. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed those clues. That was a fun one. Um, and uh, yeah, interested to know how other people got on at home. But that was, yeah, that was a bit of a reach for me, that one. I, want to know. I was hoping, sometimes with, with these, what I like to try and do is I like to try and suggest like another player with the clues I give. And this was quite a difficult one too, because obviously Luka Modric created the whole thing. I was hoping that maybe you and maybe some listeners would think Robert Lewandowski, but... Well, so I did wonder, you know, how, how old is Poland? And I, I feel like 
I actually, um, <laughs> I double checked um, just like after I'd guessed. Um, they, they, they had a, a they were recognised as a third republic in 1989, but I don't think that that was. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not sure if that counts as being recognised as a different but, country. So a- anyone who's pretty familiar with Polish history, but not familiar with FIFA classification of country status, will have been sent completely the wrong way there. <laughs> and it's a big category of people. <laughs> it's huge. Um, yeah, no, Robert Lewandowski was definitely up there, but he's never really had the best World Cups. No, 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 he, he hasn't. Um I was trying to, because I was looking through his honours, I wanted to include someone, I was like, which do I include? I also just went a Champions League instead of several Champions Leagues, in the hope that would throw you off as well. But uh, you stayed on on the right track. A sneaky guy from you. No, definitely, um, you were right in that the only other person that came to my mind was Robert Lewandowski, so your clues worked. Um, Just not well enough. Moving into settling the score and rounding up our games from last week... Uh, we started off with Crystal Palace versus Liverpool. I had said uh, 2-1 Liverpool, and you had said 3-1 Liverpool. Neither of us had guessed 7-0, uh, but you win that one. No, h- hard to predict that one, I think. It definitely is. Um, Southampton, Man City. We both actually predicted a Southampton upset, and I think Southampton did play well in this game, uh, but not well enough to avoid losing 1-0. Uh, and you had guessed 1-0, whereas I had guessed 2-1, with both of us being um, two goals away from the actual result, and that is a tie. Uh, Everton Arsenal, you had said 1-1, I had said 2-0, it was 2-1, uh, which would be a tie, but I went for the result, so I get oh. the point there. Uh, oh, it stings. Newcastle Fulham was 1-1, which I actually guessed on the money, so I will take my three points there. And oh no. Brighton versus Sheffield United uh, ended up being 1-1, I had guessed 1-0, and you had guessed 2-1, so again, that is a tie. Oh good, one more tie. Um, moving in to um, Spurs versus Leicester, I guessed 2-1 and you guessed 1-0, which is, as, as you can guess, another tie. Um, going really well. Um, Manchester United leads, I guessed 2-2, you guessed 2-3 to Leeds, mm-hmm. interestingly. Um, so I scrape my way to um, getting that one more correct than you. And then West Brom versus Villa, I guessed 2-1 to Villa, you guessed 1-1. Score ending 3-0 means that I take a point there as well. Burnley versus Wolves, I guessed 1-1, and you guessed 2-0 to Wolves. So, um, again, I was closer. And then the final game, which it would settle it, because we're both currently on four points each. Chelsea versus West Ham, I guessed 2-0 to Chelsea, and you guessed 3-1, which was a draw, so we've drawn again. <laughs> we've we've fell very close of each other on all of them. We've guessed really different results each time we've met in the middle. Um, so we yeah, it's it's interesting because um, sometimes I think that we're both just you know equally good at um, guessing the right results. You know, getting close as close as each other. Other times I think that we are just two sides of an idiot coin. I think it, what it says is if you average us out, you get the right answer. Which is no no small thing. <laughs> there, there are two of us on this podcast, so you know someone who's listening to both of us is going to sort of distill some sort of correct opinion, probably, hopefully. Maybe next week I'll just listen to all of yours, take my initial guesses, and then just aggregate them. <laughs> exactly. Um, looking at next week, uh, Leicester versus Man United, two very informed teams. I am going to go for a 2-2. Interesting. Um, I'm going to say 2-1 to Leicester. Uh, what do you think Villa Palace looks like? 
Villa Palace is going to be interesting. Um, I surely Villa, Villa will win this one. Um, Palace are not doing well, but there are due a bounce back. I'm going to say two one to Villa. I, I was going to say two nil to Villa because um, I think Palace really are just you know a little bit of a crisis at the moment. Um, Reasonable. Fulham versus Southampton. I think Fulham are on a bit of an up, you know, bit of an upwards trend at the moment, and they have claimed some scalps. But I think Southampton will have enough and win two one. So not not by a lot, but I think they'll they'll just edge it. Got it. Well, I'm going to say that it's it's going to be a two nil win to Southampton. To Southampton, yeah. Arsenal versus Chelsea is uh, a really really big game. Obviously, another derby. All the sort of connotations of that. Uh, I just think Arsenal at the moment, you you wouldn't put 10p on them winning a game. Um, they do sometimes, very weirdly, play really well against Chelsea, especially when they're in bad runs of form. So they could do that here. But I think they're going to lose 2-0. 2-0. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. That's definitely in the back of my mind as well. I think it's either going to be 1-0 to Chelsea or 2-1 to Chelsea. I'm going to say 2-1. Okay. Uh, Man City versus Newcastle, I think, is just going to be a fairly, you, you know, not special about it, really, but 4-1 to Man City. Yeah, I think um, City have been keeping a couple of clean sheets recently, so I'm going to say 3-0. Nice, nice. I can respect that. Uh, Sheffield United versus Everton. I actually think that Sheffield United are going to nick a point here, um, really, Ooh. really against what everyone suspects. Uh, I'd say I'm no, fair enough. I'm 1-1 for you. Um, I am going to guess 2-0. To Everton. To Everton, correct. Yeah. See, that makes more sense than mine. I, I I agree, but I don't know. Something's just saying Sheffield maybe will nick a point. I don't know. Um, but hey, man, I think every time you pick a, I pick a boring answer, like part of me thinks, this is good, this is safe. The other part thinks, guess 5-0. <laughs> where's, where's the fun? Where's you know the that? <laughs> it's like, that's my comb at the frog with the hood up. It's like... Did, the uh, the gambler deep inside me just wants to predict 5-3. <laughs> exactly. Um, Leeds-Burnley, I have gone just back to the Bielsa thing. I think it's going to be 3-0. Uh, probably Bamford hat-trick, and then we'll have to grovel to him next episode. I am going to go big and brave, and I'm going to guess 1-0 to Burnley. <laughs> Honestly, knowing Leeds, it could happen. They could lose 1-0 to Burnley and then play like... <laughs> Liverpool the next game and win 7-0 um, West Ham versus Brighton uh, that for me is just a 1-1 all day yeah it's hard to look past that um, I will go 2-1 to the home team nice Liverpool West versus West Brom what do you think happens here I mean surely this is a slap down 4-0 uh, for me I was also going to say 4-0. I'll say 3-0, um, just, just for the sake. I also think it's going to be a slap down, but I don't think... I'm not going to go as high as well, 5 it's, it's West... Oh, it's, it's, it's the big man himself, Sam Allardyce. Well, exactly. uh, the man of the hour. The man of every hour. Just the man. <laughs> Accordingly, 4-0 West Brom. The best man. Um, uh, maybe... Uh, could uh, be proved wrong, but yeah, I'll stick to it at the moment. I'm, I'm going to say 3-0. Uh, Wolves Spurs, I'm going to finish off. I'm going to say this will be a really pragmatic 0-0. Uh, I think that Wolves are going to nick this 1-0. Uh, we can agree it's probably going to be low scoring. I think Mourinho will be really frustrated when he gets sort of Mourinho'd and Wolves will be playing a really, really good game in the back. I mean, they have been weaker this season, so maybe not. Maybe. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like this is as close as to trench warfare as you get. Um, no, you know what? Two you, sides meeting each other for... in the Prem. You've gone for 1-0 Wolves. I'll go 1-0 Spurs. I'll, I'll, I'll back the other Ooh, Wolves. Okay. 
it's obviously going to be one 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 now or no no <laughs> another time uh i think that about wraps us up for this week rupert great to talk to you as always cam thank you very much and thank you to everyone at home for listening cheers guys bye catch you next time bye bye Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.